Good morning, everyone. I'm going to finish up this morning uh, in, with this three-part series that uh, I began, obviously, two sessions ago. And as I have said in the previous two sessions, uh, while we are going through our Friday night Bible study, which, it, which involves going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse, they're being taped and placed on our, the church's YouTube channel. But I guess there was a session or two that, that didn't come out, the recording didn't come out properly. So Pastor Roman asked if, uh, you know, if I could come up here and speak to those sections that had not been properly recorded. And as I thought about it, uh, they were substantial sections. And so uh, I thought rather than do that, I'd focus in on, on that one particular part of the book of Hebrews and, uh, and, and speak about that. And so, as you remember, as I've said before, this study has focused on the first of five primary warnings that are delivered to the Hellenistic Jews uh, who were in the diaspora immediately after and during the, the, uh, the ministry of Christ and during the, the, uh, the ministry of the apostles who had come under the, who had come under the hearing of the gospel they had come under the influence of apostolic teaching, and many of them had embraced Christ, but there were those within this group who were struggling with the concept that Jesus, as a man, that his authority and his revelation would be superior to that of angels. You remember I covered this in the first session, that angels played a predominant role in the revelation that God gave to the Jewish people all along the way. Uh, Moses, of course, Moses is their, is their supreme prophet even to this day, and then the Levitical priesthood. Well, I want to begin right at the beginning here because I haven't covered these verses yet, and I just want to read them to make a point. So in Hebrews chapter 1, reading from verses 1 to 4, we read, God, who at various time and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So right from the get-go here, the author of Hebrews launches immediately into the deity of Christ. So he's, he's correcting that misunderstanding that may still reside in some of the Hellenistic Jews who were coming under the hearing of the gospel and struggling with what they were hearing. He proves the point, and he goes through this in the rest of chapter 1, which we won't get into, and shows how indeed the Old Testament uh, promised and prophesied that the Messiah would not only be human, but he would be divine. And he launches from there, affirming the deity of Christ, and the finality of the fullness of the revelation giving, given through Christ, how his ministry, how his authority, how his office 
was far superior to that of angels, to Moses, and to the Levitical priesthood. And given the consequences that came upon their, their nation, their forefathers, for, for disobeying the laws and the rules of the covenant, 613 of them, that were mediated to them by God, to angels, to Moses, to them, if the consequences came, that came, and we've looked at just a few of them, were so severe, how much more severe would the consequences be if they, and by extension us, as the Gentiles, ignore the revelation and the authority and what Christ commands us to do as his disciples in the gospel? Okay, so he did that by taking them on a journey through historical events that they would be very familiar with to demonstrate the reality of what he was conveying to them. So these are the events that we covered in a, in a survey type of fashion in the previous sessions. Joseph to Egypt, why would God do that? Then the Exodus and the, and the 10 tests that God placed them under during that wilderness, during that wilderness journey it was, it was a hard journey. And finally, it came to the point where God turned them back, said, you're not going into the land. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, and everyone from the age of 18 and older died before they circled back to enter into the promised land. Then uh, everything that happened in the book of Joshua through Kings, how Joshua and the people were commanded to expel all the inhabitants of the land, uh, and they failed to do that, and as a result, <clears throat> they would later be the people that would bewitch the Israelites into idolatry. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, God tells, tells them and tells us that he purposely in his providence decreed and allowed that those, those indigenous people groups would remain there to test the hearts of the Israelites. Why would God do that? If he loved this people so much, if this is his chosen nation among all the world, why would he do that? These are, these are logical questions that any, any thinking human being would ask. Well, God, God loves these people so much, why does he put them through these tests? Why does he not just give them all of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant that were promised to them in a covenant in which God laid no obligation upon them. Why did he take them to Sinai and lay on them 613 laws and all of the, all of the, the, uh, the consequences that emerged from their disobedience? I'm getting ready to teach Omnibus this year at Grace Academy, and so I'm doing, it's probably my third or fourth read to Eusebius, the history of the church. And I'm reading that part where, where, uh, where the, the Roman legions had, had uh, surrounded Jerusalem and it got so bad in there that Josephus reports that mothers were killing and eating their own children. Why would God visit that upon this people that he loved so much? Why would he take them down a path that would eventually result in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, over one million Jewish people perishing. Why would he do that? 
So these are questions that naturally emerge along the way, and some of them we've answered historically. For example, why did, why did, uh, why did God in his providence lead Jacob uh, and, and his sons into Egypt and sequester them in the land of Goshen? Well, we looked at this at, at week one, that very early on, Judah has started to fall to this idolatry by intermarrying with, a, with a, a Canaanite woman. And so God got them out of this. So there were those kinds of questions. Uh, so there were historical questions, but we're going to conclude the study today with answering the question on what I call the cosmic scale. Why would God do this? If he loves his people so much, why would he put them through this? And this will finally drive home the point of the first warning in Hebrews by the time we're done this morning. So I'm just going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, just to set us up for where we're going from here. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Okay, so that sets us up as, we, as we've journeyed down through, through the history of the Jewish people trying to see it from their perspective. Now we come up to the time of the ministry of Christ. And I want to spend a few minutes in, in John's Gospel in the 12th chapter. So just to give you some context for the verses that we will be looking at more specifically in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, what you have there, uh, among other things, is you have the triumphal entry. That's the way it's called Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, and there are throngs of crowds who are, who are gathered and, and uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a Roman Catholic boy, I was always taught that, you know, this happened on Palm Sunday, you know, and if you were raised a Roman Catholic on Palm Sunday, you were given palms and the palms and the branches were thrown out on the road as Christ rode into Jerusalem. But it's, we have to look a little... We have to look closely here to, to pick up the nuances in how this chapter shifts from the triumphal entry to the verses that we're going to consider. So in John chapter 12, starting at verse 12, this is just for context, we read, The next day a great multitude had come to the feast. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, there is a, a, uh, a parallel reading in the Gospel of Matthew that I just want to read to you because there's a, there's a point that I want to make about what the people are shouting as Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, we read, Then the multitudes who went out before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so now in these two parallel passages, you have the people screaming and shouting and cheering as Jesus comes into the city. Behold, the king of Israel. That's in the, that's in the John passage. And in the Matthew passage, you have Hosanna to the son of David. Both of those terms were recognized by every Jewish person as applying to their Messiah. So as he came into Jerusalem on this, on this donkey, they were recognizing and they were proclaiming him as the promised Messiah, the one who would deliver them from foreign oppression, the one who would establish the Davidic throne that would be a perpetual throne on earth. However, some confusion developed, which, which we see later on in John chapter 12, when Jesus starts talking to the people and saying that he has to be lifted up, that he had to die. And look at how the people respond in confusion to that in verse 34 of John chapter 12. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, that he never dies. If he was the Messiah, how could it be that he would die? And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So this confused the people. Wait a minute. If you're the Messiah, it says we, we have been taught when the Messiah comes, he will remain forever and establishes a kingdom forever and forever ban foreign powers from dominating our homeland. How can it be that if you're the Messiah, you are telling us you must die? And so what this tells us, and what the author, what John will tell us in the next few verses, is they had an incomplete understanding of what was taught in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, about the Messiah. You see? And it remains the understanding to this day. Anyone who is familiar with, with uh, Jewish teaching or Jewish culture, this is what they believe about the Messiah today. Okay, so now we've set up the context. Now let's look at the verses. So uh, now I'm going to ask the question again. Well, why? So God sends the Messiah, the Father sends the Messiah to them, and they've seen the Messianic miracles. There were specific Messianic miracles that only the Messiah could perform. They've seen them, they embrace him as the Messiah, yet when he tells them that he must be crucified, they reject him. Why would God allow that? It doesn't make any sense. Well, let's pick it up in John chapter 12, starting at verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That is, they did not continue to believe in him. Now, 
look at what it says in verse 38. What's the first word there in verse 38? That. That is a, it introduces a purpose clause. So what, come ne what comes next is the reason for their rejection. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. So there are two passages that are quoted there in those verses. There are two uh, Old Testament passages. The first one that's quoted there is there's a quote there from Isaiah chapter 53. Now Isaiah chapter 53 is a chapter that we should all be very familiar with. What does Isaiah chapter 53 talk about? The servant of the Lord or the suffering the suffering Savior, the Messiah, right? And so right away, the author is, is correcting whatever may be being misunderstood here as the narrative is read, that Isaiah 53, even though they did not understand that the Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised again, it was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament that he would. So it was not the fault of the revelation that God had given to them. It was the fault of those who were communicating that revelation to the common man. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 1, as it says there, Lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Jews believe this passage. They missed it. They missed it and they're still missing it today. Jews believe this passage speaks to the personification of Israel as a nation. In other words, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is not the Messiah, but is the nation of Israel. That they're the ones who have been placed and called on this world to suffer and through their sufferings the whole world would be brought to the way they perceive heaven. They call it as the world to come. <clears throat> and the second quote comes out of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. And so God, in that passage, early on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is all about judgment being visited, not only upon the nation of Israel, but upon the nations of the world. But he deals severely with his people. And he, he as a result of their violating the the the, the covenant that they freely made with God, he visits on them what in theology is called judicial blindness. 
so that they can't see. So right from the time of, right from the time of Isaiah, it was foretold that they would not receive, they would not believe. Providential and judicial blinding. Which brings me back to the question, why would God not only allow this to happen, but in fact, providentially decree that this should happen? What kind of love is this? Well, there's a, an interesting passage, there's an interesting four verses in Isaiah chapter, chapter 65 that gives us a little more information of this, kind of makes it a little clearer for us. And you have to read it and kind of dissect the passage very carefully in order to pick up the, when you finally see it, the not so subtle nuances of the passage. So let's take a look at this for a few minutes and I think you will be interested by what you see. Okay, so in Isaiah chapter 65, verses one to four, it's up on the screen? Okay. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Verse two, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in the gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels. Now, if you read through that, uh, it can be easy to, mit, to miss the point that God here in these four verses is speaking to two separate people groups. Groups, group one, which comes in verse uh, one and two, God is speaking to Gentiles. And notice what he says there about them. They didn't ask for him. They didn't seek him. They didn't find him. In other words, he was nowhere on their radar. And yet he walks up to them and says, here I am. And he reveals himself to them. Verses three and four, on the other hand, refer to the Jewish people, this people that he loved so much, this people that he entered into the Abrahamic covenant with. Notice verse two, what it says here. The very interesting word here, and it's very easy to miss what this verb is saying. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse two, we read, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walked in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. For years, as I've read that passage, and I've read it many times, when I came across that verb, in English it's expressed in two words, stretched out, I always understood as God stretching out his hand to the people of Israel to grab it and to come in. But that's actually not what the Hebrew verb says. The Hebrew verb is para, and it means to stretch out with the aim of scattering. So think about this. So uh, the, the best way to understand this, to, to kind of picture it in my mind, 
is a, a football player who has a ball and he's running down the field and he's got his arm out like this as a deflecting point for any, any obstacle in his way. This is what God is saying here in this passage. So what these verses are telling us is that while God was in fact pushing away the Jewish people, he was gathering Gentiles to himself as believers. That's what that passage says. The two events, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, are happening simultaneously at the same time. That's the way to consider the passage properly. Okay, so now I think we can answer the cosmic question. Why would God do this to this people that he loves so much? So for a few minutes, we need to spend some time in the book of Romans chapter 11. So if you'll turn to Romans chapter 11. Paul makes his point here. You'll notice the way the, the text flows here is the latter half of Romans chapter 10 deals with the fact that the gospel was in fact presented to Israel and they rejected it. They rejected it. But notice how he closes out the 10th chapter starting at verse 19 chapter 10. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see, Paul is taking us back to Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 to 4, to make the point here, this was God's plan. Okay, now we can drop into Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am also an, an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknow. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Now he pleads with God, so on and so forth. And so, so Paul is making the point here that even during the dispensation of, of this age, uh, that, that God has a remnant of Jewish believers that are called to saving faith within the context of the church. But it begs the question still, why did God bring all of this upon this people? Well, we drop down to verse 25 in chapter 11, and we read, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, why would God providentially blind this people that he loves so much? To make room for you and me to make room for you and me. That's the plain and simple truth of it. And picking it up at verse 29, uh, or actually, let me just read one more verse, 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Dropping down to verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now, yet have now obtained mercy 
through their disobedience. We got mercy because they disobeyed. And they disobeyed because God had purposed in his divine providence that they would, when presented with the choice, make the wrong choice and therefore make room for those who were not of the nation of Israel. Verse 31, even so these also have been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So to the answer, the answer to the cosmic question of why would God, if he loves his people so much, why would he allow all of these, not only allow, but providentially decree that all of these things would come upon them? The answer to that is the simple answer, so that God might extend mercy to us. If they had received Jesus as their Messiah, we would have been permanently, eternally shut out from the grace and mercy of God. So does God love the Jewish people? Oh yes, he does, very much. But he set them aside for a time that he might show mercy to us. Think of it. Everything that they endured was part and parcel of that being set aside. The babies thrown in the Nile. The death of, of countless millions of Jewish people down through the ages as a result of their disobedience. They're not fulfilling the national covenant given to them on Mount Sinai. Everything that has befallen them. The Holocaust. And yet the greatest Holocaust is still in the future for the Jewish people. That's all part and parcel of them being set aside. And the one fundamental reason for that setting aside is so that he might show mercy to us, who it says were without the covenants of promise, foreigners, strangers, aliens, now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So now we're truly ready to understand the warning of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Let's close with looking at this passage one more time. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So four things here that I want to focus on. One, it says that we must give the more earnest heed. That is, this is to be the primary focus of our lives. If God has called you to saving faith, he is to be the primary focus of your life. Not just one day a week, not just a couple days a week, 
not just one or two hours a day during devotional time, not when things are just going well, but most especially when things are going hard. He is to be the primary focus of our lives. And the mission that he has called each and every one of us to is to be the primary focus of our lives. We have to give the more earnest heed to God's word and what it tells us. It says, lest we drift away. So you know what happens when our focus shifts away from God's word? We begin to drift away slowly and imperceptibly. And then before you know it, we're way off course. And God wakes us up one day and says, how did I end up here? How did I get here? God is not wanting that to happen. But there's a promise there. If that happens, if, and I believe that there are seasons in our lives when we lose our focus on the priority, on the primacy of God's call upon our lives, and our focus shifts, and we drift away imperceptibly. Uh, the promise is, if and when that happens, there's no escaping the scrutiny of God. And there's no escaping His correction. How shall we escape? And that phrase actually means to seek safety by fleeing away. Right? And so when you've, when you've let these things happen in your walk with Christ, you're starting to slide away, and all of a sudden you wake up and say, man, I am way off track here. The knee-jerk reaction is to keep running, to get as far away as you can. But there's no escaping the scrutiny of God, and there's no escaping the correcting work of God in your life. How shall we escape if we neglect, that is to make light of, to be negligent of, this great salvation that has been bestowed upon us. Think about the death of Christ. The, the infinite value of that. Think of the way that the Father could have done this. He could have just sent the Messiah, introduced the kingdom of age, and you and I would have been shut out. Think of that. And think of all of the, in, in the process of God stiff-arming them away during the time of all of the consequences that they suffered so that you and I might have in our time this. At what cost? At what cost and with what degree of respect should we honor the sacrifice and the cost? The sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice that was required of the Jewish people. But how about the sacrifice of the Father who loved the Son and loved the Jewish people, the one nation above all others that he has called as his own? How about the sacrifice that he makes in that so that he might extend mercy to us? At what position in our, in our hierarchical scheme of priorities should developing and maintaining our relationship with Christ hold? Seems to me 
that it should hold the top position every moment, not just when things are going good, but most especially when things are going bad. Because you're at war and you have an adversary and he would like nothing better than to see you come under the correcting influence of God by letting the tough times in your life take down your walk with Christ. The temptations take down your walk with Christ. The distractions take down your walk with Christ. He would love nothing better than to be able to, to deflect what God has for you to do and then observe because he's the one who makes the accusation before God when God brings correcting influence into your life. So how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Mm -hmm.